Good morning. We welcome you to the 11 o'clock service at Houghton Wesleyan Church. You know, you may not notice the subtleties in your bulletin, but it's nice to see a prelude by our own William Allen, who is composer and resident at Houghton College and a dear friend to all of us. His wife is playing at the organ today. Now, I know we don't usually say those things, but it's just very interesting and Noteworthy. So we welcome you in this conjunction between public school vacation and Houghton College vacation. The only people who don't have vacation today are the dear Houghton Academy students who are uh, with us, and we're glad they're with us. Would you stand with me, if you're able, for the call to worship in your bulletin? Let us worship Christ, who has done great things. Let us worship God, who has caused streams of mercy to flow in the wasteland. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we're able to approach you this morning and every morning solely because of your love and the willing sacrifice of your dear Son, our great High Priest and King, Jesus Christ. Our hearts are full of praise. So may our offerings of thanksgiving be pleasing to you, and may your Holy Spirit open our minds and souls to receive all that you want to reveal of yourself today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We give thanks to God for his great gift to us in Jesus Christ. And we've come today to worship him. It's so good to see you uh, as we gather together in worship. We invite those of you who are joining us in streaming as well. For those of you who are here, let me invite you to take a few moments to share a word of greeting, a word of peace with others in worship. To mention just a couple of things, uh, you will notice in your bulletin uh, a word about a membership class that we're hosting this coming Saturday morning from 9 to noon. If you're interested in joining the church or just interested in knowing more about what it means to be a member of the church or just like to know more about this body of believers, you're invited to come to that class. Uh, we will have child care available if you need that. Uh, but we'd love to have you come if you're not a member. Um, and if you are a member, you want to come for a refresher course, feel free to come as well. Um, but uh, if you are interested in coming, let me know and make sure we have enough materials for everyone who will be there. I also wanted uh, just to mention the flowers here are, uh, were donated by the Houghton College class of 1956 in uh, loving memory of uh, Dr. Billy Graham, who died this week. And it's a recognition of, of his influence upon them and, quite frankly, upon so many people through the years of his ministry. Our Old Testament scripture today is from Daniel, exciting book, chapter 6. It's a long chapter, so we're going to be using selected verses. And let me introduce first, in chapter 6, King Darius is so pleased with Daniel that even though Daniel is an exiled Jew, he makes plans to place Daniel in one of the highest positions of his kingdom. Hearing of this decision, others, out of jealousy, come to the king with a request. So now selected verses from Daniel chapter 6. We are all in agreement that the king should make a law, that for the next 30 days any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, Your Majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room. With its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, That man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last the king gave orders to Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles, so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night.
Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you served so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, Long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, I invite you to stand, if you're able, to join in the singing of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here. standing for prayer. Lord, we thank you for those who sacrificed and took risks, including Jesus, our Savior, out of faithfulness to your word and to your will. May our tithes and offerings, however large or small, be signs to you of our commitment to your kingdom in heaven on earth, and in heaven and on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name.
One step of our surrender to God is to acknowledge our need for God. So let me invite you to join with me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. God, our Lord and Creator, we acknowledge that we have sinned against you. Our actions have fallen short of Christ. Our attitudes have not reflected Christ. Our words have not communicated Christ. We have been more concerned with our own comfort than with our neighbor's pain. We too often use our resources to protect what we want rather than being burdened with compassion for what others need. In our fascination with self, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Nevertheless, you have kept faith with us. We ask for your mercy upon us. Strip us of all that is unlike Christ and help us to live up to our calling Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Holy Father, even as we acknowledge our need for you, we also give thanks and honor and praise for who you are. You are a God of mercy and grace who promises to forgive our sins and to cleanse us we come today relying on that promise. As we gather today, we we think about the needs and the burdens that we represent in our own lives, in in this church, this wider community in the world. We pray for all who are grieving today. We pray for the family of, of Dr. Graham and Thank you for his great influence on so many people. We pray that you will comfort his family in their grief. And may these moments be an opportunity for for us to be stirred to new faith. We pray for the family of Pastor Cap Farrow, who died this week. We ask for your grace upon them as they, the family as they, as they are grieving. May you give them comfort. We pray for his church in, in downtown Buffalo that, that they would know your grace and mercy upon them. And we ask that, that your presence would be so real to each of them. For the other burdens and concerns that we have, the grief that we feel for various things and stages of loss, we ask for your comforting presence. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues. We pray for Florence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols, Bob Brown, and Louise Princell, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, for Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, for Ben King, Doris Esepian, for Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, for Bill Getty and Ella Woolsey, for Mike Raybuck and Bev Rett, for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Emily Cricklar, and so many others. May your healing grace be upon them. We pray for the other needs that we bring today and others we are connected to. their financial needs and we pray that, that you would help us to trust you to supply our needs. Concerns about the future, anxiety and fear. We pray that you would give us grace to trust you about what lies ahead, whether we can see it or not. And our broken relationships bring healing. Whether it is the brokenness of of siblings, parents and children, husbands and wives, friends. Lord, in each circumstance, bring your grace to bear in your healing mercy. Father, we, we thank you for the, all the ministries of this church and the ways that we teach and encourage and, and help each other. We thank you for other churches that do this as well. We pray today for the Rushford United Methodist Church and Pastor Russell, may your grace and blessing be upon this gathering of believers and their witness. We pray for our nation, 
Lord, we, we pray for those who are grieving from the recent tragedy in Parkland, Florida, and others that we've experienced as a nation this year and previous years as the grief continues, and the pain and the loss. We ask that you would minister your grace in ways that are beyond our ability to comprehend. Father, we ask that you will help those still recovering from disasters, and particularly the people in Puerto Rico. May they know your presence and your grace, and may you continue to help in the recovery efforts there and many other places. Father, we pray for the wider world, places where violence and war are just life. Bring peace. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. And today we want to pray especially for the Christians in North Korea. We are glad to see that there may be some, some uh, thawing of relationships between North Korea and South Korea. We don't know where that will lead. But, Father, even in the midst of that, we pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea. One of the most difficult places of the world to be a follower of Jesus. Give them strength and courage. Reveal yourself to them in in powerful ways. May they bear witness to you in very difficult circumstances. And Father, may there be an explosion of the gospel in this nation of people that you dearly love. Father, we, we pray for the helps of a children's home in Georgia. This place that has served uh, children for so many years, now moving into a different direction of ministry. We pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit upon all who've been a part of that organization as they move to other things and other ways of ministry. And for the children, Father, we pray that you would provide them with the care that they need. May they, these children who are in such difficult circumstances, Know that they are loved by you and by your people. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Be glorified in our desire to honor you by bringing all of these concerns to you. And we ask all of this in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and our returning King and the one who teaches us the model for prayer which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
like you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of the gospel and remain standing for the hymn. And after the hymn, children may be dismissed to Children's Church. So we're reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
Everybody wants to be successful. I mean, whatever we're attempting, whatever we have, whatever things we're planning, whatever we're doing, we want to be successful. I don't know of, of anyone who, who starts a business hoping that it ends in bankruptcy. I don't know of anybody who enters into grad school hoping to flunk out, right? I don't know of a mechanic that when she's done fixing the car, she hopes it doesn't run. I don't know of a coach that takes on a team hoping that they lose every game. I don't know of a doctor who begins a surgery hoping that it doesn't turn out right. And if you're a patient, you're really hoping the doctor doesn't think that way, right? I mean, whatever we start, whatever we do, we're looking for success. And, and that's because that's how God created us. It's a part of being made in the image of God because God is all about success. All you have to do is read the creation story. At the end of every day of God making all the things that he makes, he gets to the end and he looks at it and he says, that's good. That's really good. It is, he's saying, success. I accomplished what I was hoping and wanting to accomplish. And he has put that within every single one of us. And so when we start things, when we try things, when we have dreams and plans about things, we are, we are doing so with the desire to be successful because that's how God created us. But we live in a world in which obstacles get in the way of our success. We get hurt. Things don't turn out the way we want them to. People oppose us. Circumstances seem to oppose us. Things don't go the way we want them to. And we find ourselves striving and wrestling and working more and more and more to accomplish what we want to accomplish. And I think it's that opposition, it's that struggle to accomplish that I think causes us so often to make success our passion. It, it's that it's the knowing that we're going to have to face difficulties, knowing that we're going there are some hurdles that we're going to have to get over, causes us often to think there is nothing more important than success. And because we feel that way, we, have, we deal with all of the things and the struggles of, within ourselves and with other people. And in the course of, of that process, we find ourselves often at, in for, at forks in the road. Where we have to decide, which way am I going to choose? Am I going to choose the road of success and not worry about anything else? Or do I have to put success aside to do the right thing? And we don't face those kinds of questions once or twice or a dozen times in our lives. We face them all the time in a variety of ways. And I think that is exactly the place the pilot finds himself in as the passion narrative unfolds. Pilate is the governor of Judea, and, and he's the person that they bring Jesus to, to have him condemned. Now, we have a tendency when we read stories in Scripture, we tend to see everybody as one-dimensional. They're either good or they're bad. It's one of the reasons why we have such a struggle with people like David, and people like Samson, and some of these people in the Scripture who are much more complex than we often think. But that's the reality of human nature. We're complex. And, and when we read the scriptures, we have to remember that because that's who we are. We're complex. I think, it's, I think one of the reasons we have such a, a political divide in our nation right now is because we have forgotten that. And we have this sense that you're, you're either for me or you're against me. And if you're for me... You can't do wrong. I'll figure out a way to look, look apt over it. And if you're against me, you can't do right. I'll ignore what I might see. And we start drawing lines and thinking that the people we interact with are, are either all good or all bad. And we remove the complexity 
But we don't want people to do that to us. Because we know we're complex. And here is Pilate wavering, tottering what to do. He wants to release Jesus. He knows. He's not, he's not uh, immune to, injust, to injustice. He knows, it's, Matthew tells us, the only reason Jesus is standing in front of him is because the religious leaders are envious of Jesus. Because the religious leaders are self-interested. He knows that. He spends a few minutes talking with Jesus, and it's clear to him. And so he walks out and he says, look, I've got nothing. I'm going to release him. And the people start to riot. He says, okay, well, let me talk to him again. And he has another conversation with him. He knows what's right. He's struggling to do it. Because his success as a leader, his dreams, his plans that he has worked so hard for are hinging in the balance of this decision. So he takes the, does the next best thing he can think of. He tries to pass the book. Man, is Pilate human or what, right? He's thinking, I want to release Jesus, but I'm going to let somebody else make that decision. So he, he hears that he's from Galilee. So he says, Herod's in town. Send him to Herod. And Herod talks to Jesus for a little bit and decides, I'm not doing this. And he sends him back to Pilate. I'm sure Pilate's, Pilate's uh, you know, heart sunk into his stomach when the, when the soldiers came back in with Jesus. What are you guys doing here? Herod said, I'm not dealing with it. Send him back. And his mind continues to spin and he comes up with a brilliant idea. Every year, they release a prisoner. So he says, that's what I'll do. And he turns to his aide and he says, look, who's the worst guy we've got in prison? Who's the, who's the most dangerous criminal we have behind bars? Who's the, most, who, who's the worst? And the guy says, oh, that's easy. That's Barabbas. He said, okay, what about Barabbas? He says, well, he's committed murder, insurrection, treason. I mean, he's done it all. And he said, the people, don't, people hate him? Oh, yeah, they want him in prison? You bet they do. Okay, go get him. And so he brings Barabbas, and he takes him out and stands before the people. Barabbas on one side, Jesus on the other. It's an interesting Barabbas' given name is Jesus Barabbas. And he says, who do you want? This Jesus or this Jesus? And Pilate's thinking to himself, this is going to be so easy. Who in their right mind would choose Barabbas? Who wants their kids on the streets when Barabbas is loose? Nobody wants to hang out with Barabbas. I suspect that all the other criminals they've released through the years probably were then there for tax evasion or petty theft. But not this kind of stuff. You don't release those kinds of prisoners. Pilate is again shocked. We want Barabbas released. He's like, you're kidding me. And he's still wavering until the religious leaders threaten him. And that threat pushes him over the edge. Because they say to him, look, if you release Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar. Now, what can they do to him? He's the governor. He's Roman. They're they're basically uh, enslaved by the Roman government. What do they have? What can they do to him? Oh, because there's a history. When Pilate first becomes the governor, he, he makes some big mistakes. First, one of the first things he does is he, he gets his troops in Caesarea and he brings them down to Jerusalem. And they walk in Jerusalem carrying their flags with images of the emperor on them. And they plant those flags near the temple and the people erupt. Don't be bringing those flags of the emperor near our temple. And they begin to riot. And it is so serious that Pilate actually sends them back to Caesarea. And he loses face. Then for some reason, I think maybe just to to sort of get back at them, he hangs some shields in the temple that had the names of deities on them. Idols and gods. And the people really get upset. And he's not taking them down. He's going to fight with them about it until the emperor hears about it. And he says, Pilate, stop doing that. Take those down. Get those out of there. What do you want, to create a riot? 
And then when the people need a new aqueduct for the city to run the water in and out, to pay for it, Pilate goes, steals money from the temple treasury to pay for it. And that's the last straw. And now the people are rioting in the streets. And Pilate sends his soldiers dressed in, in street clothes out among the people with clubs hidden. And at a given signal, they just start beating people. And numerous people die. Others are executed. It is a mess. And when word gets back to the emperor, he sends word to Pilate, do I need to send somebody else to be the governor of Judea? Can you not handle this? I'm going to give you one more chance. Pilate is in hot water on thin ice with the emperor. And when they say to him, you're no friend of Caesar if you release Jesus, there's teeth to that threat. And Pilate is watching his career, everything he's worked for, everything he's dreamed for, disappearing if he does the right thing. You and I face a lot of similar kinds of circumstances. We, things come to us in our life where to make a decision is to put our dreams, our plans, things we worked for at risk. I mean, look at Daniel. I mean, Daniel puts it all on the line. He has worked so hard to become a leader. He's done the right things over and over and over again. And when it comes to the fork in the road, success or God, he chooses God. Pilate can't bring himself to do that. And so he pulls out a basin of water, washes his hands, and symbolically and literally says, I'm washing my hands of this. It is interesting that just a few hours before Jesus takes a basin of water... And he uses it for a completely different purpose. Pilate says, okay, I'm going to release him, but it's on your heads, not mine. I'm not responsible. As if saying the words makes it true. And the people say, fine, we'll take it. Put it on us. And Pilate's done. I think one of the most intriguing things about this whole story of Pilate is... Is the dream that his wife has. I find that fascinating to be interjected into Matthew's story. It makes me think of, of um, something I heard Dennis Kinlaw say a long time ago in a sermon he preached about, about Malchus. Malchus is the servant of the high priest. And he's representing the high priest when the soldiers come to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And when they come to get Jesus, Peter, being impetuous as he is, picks up a sword and just swings it. Probably, probably strikes Malchus from behind and cuts off his ear. And Jesus is upset. He, tell, he rebukes Peter, put your sword away. And then he reaches down into the dirt, picks up that ear and puts it back and heals him. And Kinlaw says, you know, he, he envisions later when they get back and, Chia, and, uh, and, and Malchus comes to, to Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and he's, Caiaphas says, how'd it go? And he said, well, okay, I guess. And the whole time he's pulling on that ear. Is he sure we got the right guy? And Kinlaw says, you know, I think that's one last love note to the hard-hearted high priest God's saying, do you really want to do this? And I think this dream is one more love note from God saying to Pilate, you don't have to do this. This doesn't have to be your destiny. You don't have to make this decision. Pilate is not a pawn of God. Pilate is being tempted to be a pawn of Satan. Jesus comes to reconcile the world to all of his creation. But Pilate doesn't have to be the one who sentences him. Pilate doesn't have to take this role. He can step back and say, I don't know much about Yahweh, but I know in my spirit what's right and what's wrong, and I'm going to do what's right. And I think that, I think that 
that dream is like the shadow of the cross falling down upon Pilate and opening his eyes to what's right in front of him. As I said last week, when you're walking outside in the bright sunshine and all of a sudden the sun goes behind a cloud, you notice the difference. Or if you're walking down the street and the sun goes behind a tall building and you walk from the sunlight, the warmth of the sunlight, into the temperature drop of the shade, you notice a difference. It grabs your attention. And I think the shadow of the cross is falling down upon Pilate when this, when this word comes to him about his wife's dream. And God is trying to get his attention and saying, do you really want to do that? You don't have to. I know it looks like it's going to cost you everything. But it's not. It's going to open the door for you to find everything. I think God does that with us all the time. You know, the, the moment when you know, you're, you're hurt, you're angry, you're frustrated, and, and, and you just can't take anymore, and, and you, you, you've figured out what you're going to say or what you're going to write, and, and you are ready to go, and you're just on the cusp of doing it when the doorbell rings or the phone rings. The kids start making noise or the dog bark starts barking or the traffic backs up. And in that time of delay, you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, do you really want to say that? Do you really want to do that? Do you really want to say it like that? You know, when you hit send, you can't get it back. When you speak those words, they're real, they're alive. You can't change them really want to do that? We come to these forks in the road where, where we're trying to decide our dreams, my hopes, success, and what's right. And the shadow of the cross falls on us and the spirit of the Lord speaks to us. And he does that. It's an act of grace from God because he knows how hard it is. It's so much easier to choose success than it is to choose a cross. You know, it's so much easier. Everybody keeps telling us success, success, success. That's what life is about. Choosing a cross is, is hard. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's difficult. Reading a book this week where the person was saying, I always find it fascinating when, when people make the statement of, you know, faith for Christians, it's just a, it's just a crutch. Is it, really? What kind of a crutch is the cross? It's not a crutch. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's everything counterintuitive to how in our sinful natures we think. But it's the call of the gospel. And it is the way of life. It is the way of joy. It's the way of peace. And what we have to understand is that as the shadow of the cross falls on us, as the Spirit speaks to us, it's trying to help us understand that our perspective is, is skewed. We're just thinking about life right now, in the moment. And God is thinking about the eternal. We're thinking about where this decision is going to take us tomorrow. God's thinking about what this decision, where this decision is going to take us for all of eternity. And he wants us to have a bigger perspective. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he describes love, like loving like Jesus. And I mean, when he, what he describes is difficult. It's challenging. It's a struggle. And he says it's hard for us because we have an imperfect perspective. We, it's like we see through a glass darkly right now. We are missing it. We can't quite get it. But that's the place of trust and faith. That we believe, even when we can't see it, it's true. Daniel couldn't see it, but it was true. And God may not rescue us like he does Daniel. But it is still true 
that the way of the cross is the way of life. It's what Paul is describing in Philippians chapter 2. You know, that, those verses where we, we think about you know, Jesus, Paul is saying about Jesus that though he was very nature God, he chose not to grasp that. Instead, humbled himself to death on a cross. And, and, he, and he says, this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to think. This is what you ought to be. But we often miss our verses 9, 10, and 11. Because he says in verse 9, because Jesus went through that, therefore, he's exalted. Therefore, he, he receives the greatest blessings of God to the glory of God. And he begins that section by saying, think like Jesus. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And to think like Jesus is not just to go to the cross, but to, to embrace the cross because we see the bigger picture. Because we've been... We've gotten a glimpse of the eternal perspective, like Jesus. And that's the calling of the cross. The great poet, author, pastor, George MacDonald, probably the most influential person in C.S. Lewis coming to faith, once said, the Son of God did not suffer unto death so that we wouldn't suffer. The Son of God suffered unto death so that our sufferings might be like His. And that's the call of the cross. Whatever we give up, is going to be eternally worth it. Whatever sacrifices we make are going to be eternally worth it. And I think once we understand it, I think it will be worth it even before eternity. Because it's drawing us closer and closer to God who is the source of everything We've been created to experience. The shadow of the cross convicts us. The shadow of the cross speaks to us. The shadow of the cross reminds us that there is more. Holy Father, we want to thank you Thank you for caring enough about us to give us your grace in these difficult moments of life. Help us to want your grace. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.